0: you're listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia today we are in Viareggio
1: region. <speaking>
2: buonasera <the city> <speaking in the city> Brian, good evening, the Baron. How are you? Buonasera, Principe, di Berlino. Il principe di Berlino. I'm good. How are you? Um, yeah, I'm good, Brian. I'm somewhat recharged. Somewhat recharged. I thought I was recharged earlier, but now I'm not so sure. It's very, it's it's quite a, a dank, depressing scene that greets us on the Lungomare in Viareggio. This is one of the few big towns in Italy I've never really spent any time and I was quite looking forward to seeing it on this Giorgio d'Italia. Same with Las Spezia, I was in Las Spezia this morning. Brian's a grimacing. Um, do you know what, Brian? I was thinking about this earlier. I was obsessed with maps when I was younger and I was obsessed with travel. And when I first came on holiday to Italy, we used to buy these touring club Italiano Fantastic match which is beautiful. Yeah. And I have a lot of those at home. Yeah, and they place names were either underlined in red, or I think they were either in, or they were in a red square, which suggested they were very much worthy of interest. They yeah. were and um, that was the sort of high square, that was the or category as far as sort of historic cultural interest was concerned. And I seem to remember Viareggio and La spezia were both in those boxes and it made me
3: I mean what would that put Piazza Santa in what other category? Know.
2: I don't know, but it made me really want to come here and now I'm not quite so sure but I'm sure that is the weather's fault, not Viareggio's fault itself. Brian, just just um, tell us
3: a little bit more about the scene where we're sitting. We're sitting at a bar, aren't we? Yeah, we're sitting at the Lungomare, and there's like a very long, straight promenade here in Viareggio that is basically the start of the Tuscan Riviera. I mean, there's a little bit further down, there's Lire di Camaiore, then there's um, Marina Pietasanta, and then the, the celebrity hotspot for the Marmi. And we're sitting here, it's fairly renovated. The, the very famous part of, of Via Reggio is the carnival. It's the second biggest carnival in Italy, with obviously with Venice being the big one. It, and for the most, I think five weekends in a row around February, there's a huge carnival, carnival parade here. And right now, this evening, there's no one, Italians don't like the rain, they stay inside.
2: Yes, Brian, uh, it's a de- slightly depressing scene now. And it was a slightly depressing scene. For me, almost a heart-rending scene As I walked back from the buses, the buses were about a kilometre away from the press room today, and I saw these riders coming in. As you do, often at the end of stages, there's a sort of kilometre or two kilometres for them to ride to get to the bus. So they're riding almost in normal traffic, and every one of those riders pretty much today had some kind of um, story of woe. And we'll hear later about some of the ordeals that the riders endured today. And among them was, for example, Alberto Dainese. We'll hear a story from his director sportif, Matt Winston, later. Um, He was in a pitiful state on the Paso de Radici. Um, Probably one of the worst days he's ever had on a bike, if not one of the worst days he's ever had, full stop. And yet, these guys make it to the finish. They do something, they accomplish something quite heroic. And there's no one there to applaud them, there's yeah. no confetti, yeah.
3: there's no… I think they use it all at the carnival, I totally <laughs> well, agree. Only are, one guy smiling today and that was the f- one f- crossing the finish line first.
2: Yeah, and there are no laurels and I found myself thinking, you know, when we compete in the, the uh, sort of weekend warriors, we do these big challenges or grand fondos or whatever our whole family knows about it, and our extended family and all our friends and, you know, there are messages of congratulations just for finishing… And these guys, for these guys, none of that at all. I mean, no. they're barely even a second glance from the passers-by in the back streets of Viareggio, um, which, which, yeah. Um, no,
3: I, 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 definitely get the thing. But to me, actually, most of the time, Viareggio feels anticlimactic. It's, it's even if I live further down the road, it's. I don't really come here. Yeah, my accountant lives here. That's that the only reason all, why it? I ever come here. <laughs> well, Brian, let's do He actually has an original Che poster, would you believe it? Oh, really? Wow, that's very unusual for an accountant. Brian, let's
2: do some bookkeeping now, shall we? Some bean counting. And let's tell people what happened today. Um, let's go to today's Tale
3: of the Tapper.
0: It's time for the Tale of the Tappa.
3: Thank you, Daniel. Stage 10 from Emilia-Romagna to Viareggio in Tuscany, 196 kilometers across the Apennines to the Tuscan Riviera with a long climb across the Passo di Radici as the main obstacle. The weather was not for sunbathing. Torrential rain fell on the peloton and even if the road dried up a little bit here and there as the race got closer to the Mediterranean, it was still a way harder stage than this profile would normally have in store. After the heartbreaking news of Evanipole Eben- heading back home, a few other important names didn't get to sign in into this race this morning. Riders such as Rigoberto Ran, Stefan Kung also said goodbye to the Giro. Kung said tight uh, fatigue. Rang had a had, uh, positive COVID test. Other non starters were Pozzovivo and Matsvuers from Israel Premetrek, and Bustrom and Brent Amre from Antamashir Circus One Team. 24 riders in total now, Daniel, have said ciao and arrivederci to the race so far. And if that wasn't circus enough for the day, the next first, well, the next really big headline came during the stage, as podium candidate uh, Vlazov of Porohan also called it quits. A lot of riders suffered on the early part of the stage, and the terrain was certainly hard enough for a solid breakaway to be established. After several attacks, counter-attacks, going back and forth, the group, A-group, went away as the stage progressed under the rain. David Bais was part of the action, but after taking the point at the top of the Radici, he fell back and eventually left it to Manu's court, Alessandro Marchi and Derek Gee of Israel Premiotech to throw everything in the kitchen sink after the stage win. As the breakaway in the finishing throws of the stage paced up the Valfredana from Luca towards the sea, the gap started to dwindle on the small rise heading across Montemagno. But the three riders in the front just had less than a minute to fantasize of the potential of of a stage win. In spite of the sprinters teams putting in a wholehearted chase after uh, riders like Max Peters and Ma- uh, Mark Cavendish had gotten back, it was however left for the three in front to fight for the stage. And Magnus Kort, my fellow Dane, played it tactically brilliant to take the win on the stage. There were a few crashes here and there, but everyone made it to the finish. There was a p- pretty weird crash uh, on Borgo, uh, close to the Devil's Bridge in Borgo-Morzano, where Postelberg and Warren McGill went down. Uh, and then the bike mechanic trying to cross the road to help took out Alberto Bedial. All were able to get back on the bike again. However, the peloton was not in a position to wait anyone. This was a, a rather eventful day because of the toughness of the stage, but I think it, it it really played out like a spring classic with how we saw the final. And uh, Magnus Kort joins Mess Peterson in this Giro as the third ever Danish rider to take a stage win in a Grand Tour. Brian, I think there were some changes, some
2: semi-significant changes on general classification. There were, well, most people at the top in the top five they all moved up a place because Remco Everpool didn't start and there was one serious loser today Someone who lost nine positions on general classification, went from 11th to 20th, and that was Jay Vine of UAE Team Emirates. Um, I saw him at the team bus parking, and needless to say, he looked pretty upset, pretty exasperated with the day that he had had. Um, he was involved in a crash earlier in the stage, nine wasn't he? places, I think it was the same crash in which Pavel Sivakov was involved. Yep. Sivakov who was pretty active early on in the stage, as was Teo Gagenhart. Teo Gagenhart was was in a a break of sorts with none other than our own Motown maestro, uh, Larry Warbass at one stage. It was a short lived split, but it yeah, did
3: occur. There was several splits on the on the ramps up the Radici. Radici is, is a very long climb. It's the other side, it's the moderner side of um one of the hardest climbs in Tuscany that both of you and I have ridden a the San Pellegrino. But I think it was an interesting element that actually, that that Teging, who you spoke to earlier this morning together with Lionel, actually wanted to to do something on this stage, whether it was just to protect his position or actually wanted to see if he can gain something. Well, we didn't talk that much
2: yesterday, did we, when we were discussing the various tactical permutations, we didn't go into too much detail about the, the options that are available to Ineos. I mean, maybe it's just worth underlining their strength in numbers at the top of the general classification. Sivikov is still in the top 10, so he's 8th obviously they've got Thomas in the pink jersey, Teo Gegenhardt in 3rd place and they've also got Lawrence de Plus in and 11th and timing Aronsman in 10th the so they have uh, well, a huge number of options there for the coming days Probably won't need them tomorrow on the stage to Toronto That's probably going to be a sprint stage. Um, Brian, you were in the press conference. Just before we hear a little bit more about the stage winner and how he became a stage winner today, um, did Geraint Thomas talk about the decision to wear the pink jersey today? Because it, there are precedents for inheritors of leaders' jerseys deciding not to wear them as a sort of magnanimous gesture vis-à-vis the outgoing leader. Um, I think back to 1999 where Marco Pantani, this was a, a sort of gesture of questionable taste. Marco Pantani was kicked out of the race effectively because he failed a health test and Paolo Savoldelli, uh, who inherited the pink jersey, did not wear
3: it that day. Um, there have been a few other occasions like that as well. But th- what did Thomas say? Well, he, the question was posed from one of the, our Italian colleagues and he was really straightforward at how he replied. You know, he, It's not the way he wanted to take the pink jersey, but he also said, well, someone has to wear it and I you know, personally I agree with him, but he also said it's not like, it's not like Remco died. Riders crash out of races, they, they go home because of illnesses, and when you put that into perspective, actually, it, they would also set an awkward precedent to gen- as soon as someone leaves the race with leader's jersey, you just can't wear it the day after. I think it actually pays respect to Remco's leader's jersey to wear it because it shows the importance of the jersey and what Remco Evenepoel was actually fighting for. That's my opinion anyways. Brian,
2: talking of pink jerseys, pink, in this case, pink and yellow, is it? Uh, the EF Easy Post pink It's kind of a pinkish. I still think it looks a little bit orange. Anyway. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a
3: patchwork kind yes, of a kid.
2: Yes, it's a patchwork. Uh, Magnus Court was wearing EF Education Easy Post's colours today. And, well, he completed his Grand Slam of Major Tour Stage Victories. Let's hear, shall we, from another compatriot of yours? In fact, a friend of yours, a fellow former adopted Lucchese of yours, um, used to live in Lucca. Matty Breschel, his uh, Mangus Court's direct sportif. Well, Matty, uh, Mangus has finally done it. He's done the, the Grand Slam. Um, from your point of view in the car, what what, what was the key today um, to get that
1: win? It was to first of all make it in, make it to the breakaway and have a Enough time gap on top of uh, Radici, um, and we were aiming for four minutes. We were kind of hoping for five, but aiming for four. And then afterwards, the race was on. But once we hit the Cat 2 climb with a little bit more than two minutes, I I've, I believe we could do it because it was uh, even though it was only three, four riders up there. We know the qualities of uh, Di Marchi and uh, G is is really strong, um, and Magnus also. And so with the wind pushing down Gaffagnana, um, yeah, I, I believed it the whole way. And yeah, just tried to give Magnus the information he needed. Was your local knowledge in any way important
2: today? Your person, you spent a lot of time in these in this part of Italy.
1: Yeah, maybe maybe um i think if if the peloton wanted to catch them they should have closed it a little bit more on uh on on the top of uh, radici um and not giving them four minutes because yeah i knew all of the the roads and i knew that also with them hitting Montemagno uh just before the finish here um those last 10k would be over before they knew it so one one minute was enough and you kind of saw only two three riders were pulling in the peloton and it was just straightforward you know Mm. always slightly down so yeah i don't know we passed all the four houses i've rented over time and like it was it was nice a bit of down memory lane You're not, to, you're not going to
2: claim too much credit, um, and just lastly, you're obviously you're obviously glad that the race, the stage, did go ahead as planned. But what was your position as a team this morning, and did you think that
1: it should have gone ahead? We wanted to race because if they took away the the big climb, we knew it was a stage for the sprinters, and that was not our chance. It was hundred percent miserable up there, but we we had to stay in the game and. and kind of stay sharp and focus um, in order to to claim this win otherwise it would have been game over so in my opinion you always have to just stay quiet Um, we have Betio who's uh, he's not usually quiet no he's not (laughs) I'm trying to control him a bit and fair enough Um, I'm happy it turned out like it did
2: and is he okay Betio we saw him crash him but he's he's up and he's fine he's he's
1: okay yeah it was a shitty crash but he's all right
0: the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science
4: The cycling podcast coverage of the Giro d'Italia is sponsored by Science in Sport. And as we enter the second week of the race, this is when it really becomes apparent that this is a Grand Tour and not just a run-of-the-mill week-long stage race. I asked Ben Swift of the Ineos Grenadiers what kind of consideration he makes when fueling for a Grand Tour as opposed to a week-long stage race.
0: I wouldn't say a Grand Tour is any different to a week. It's just that it's over three weeks, you know, like obviously when you're in a race, racing's completely changed now over the last, I guess they say it happens every, all the time, you know, when you start out as a pro to when you come into the end of your career, you kind of say like there's a difference in in how it was when, when I was younger and stuff like that. It used to be so much more of a slow burn of a race and stuff, whereas now it's, just quite full gas can be full gas from the start to the finish and racing's opening up up a lot earlier so generally we're having uh, much more high carb days let's say so you're feeling quite a lot higher throughout the day and it's just working with each nutritionist that you have and stuff like that and each each person has their own idea on on the best way of, of doing it and I think you know as you go along all these different nutritionists you pick up little bits and bobs and then What works for you personally the best, you take the the best of that. And I think as long as you have good dialogue with your nutritionist, I think that's the the most important bit. But we're definitely seeing more high-carb days. And just because it's a grand tour, you don't necessarily eat more. You just keep to that structure and that plan, but for a longer time, if that makes sense.
4: For the full range, go to scienceinsport.com.
2: Well, Brian, that was your old mate, um, drinking partner, dancing partner, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, general let's not go part- into partner yeah. in mischief, Matty Breschel, talking about how local noise did perhaps played a role today. I think Matty Breschel is quite modest and probably didn't want to overplay it today, but you think that he may have had a role. He knows these roles
3: better than anyone, as, as a local, I would say. And on that really crucial part of the stage where it was make or break for, for them actually to stay clear. It happened on the in the Valfedana. And uh, I've actually lived there for eight years in that valley. It's the valley that leads from Luca to the sea and so has Mati. He's lived there for 13 years. And it's such a slight dragging uphill. And I counted on my stride. I think I've done that more than 150 times. Mati, I must have done it a thousand times having lived there for such a long time as a professional. And for sure it's played a part. I mean, there's also... There's been a lot of training camps here including ones where I think also... Maybe on the national team uh, Magnus Court has been here, but he must have ridden here before. You know, he's also done the Tirreno, which is is closer to this area than any other race. Um, the Tirreno part of it anyway. So for sure that local knowledge. But also like Mathieu was, uh, he's not someone that won that much as a bike rider, but he was when he won, he was really good at winning from a small group. Sort of his, his in, in Not dissimilar to Magnus Kort. Exactly, exactly. And Magnus Kort has just perfected the, mm. the ability to both do a reduced bunch sprint, even a you know even a rather big one, having won in, in the World's in Madrid. But he's also so good at like picking the stage that's just hard enough to wear out every other breakaway companion mm. to then to then be the fastest guy on the run. He tried that last year, the Giro in Friuli, really, and he just didn't have anything left in the tank. Today, he certainly didn't. Extra points, extra kudos
2: to Magnus Court for not originally making that break today and then yeah, exactly. getting
3: across. He was screaming in the radio, he said in the press conference, because it was so hectic. And, you know, just the fact that that, that the group would go where Theo uh, was in just says everything about how chaotic it was. With riders stopping and riders yeah, exiting the race. And he said he was screaming in the radio to try and get any kind of information. Because he had no idea where he was, he had no idea who was up the road, but he really wanted to be in that breakaway. Made sense. Yeah, and uh, Alessandro De Marchi and
2: Derek G were pretty good guys to be with. G, we've seen, is in excellent form. De Marchi is also in excellent form. He's just a very strong rider. And I felt felt for him at the finish. I was speaking to his team manager, Brent Copland. Second, second time he gets to yeah. the finish line so close. I mean, I think Jaco, Lula, they were pretty resigned to his fate when they saw who was away with. Magnus Court was obviously on paper the, the fastest rider there. Um, but who knows? Maybe Alessandro will get more opportunities later in the Giro. And G, well, at this point, he's one of the revelations of the Giro. The amateur, the... I mean, everyone's talking about his ornithology, his passion for bird watching um, because this was discovered a few days ago and people have been talking about little else in relation you know, to Derek G. Like quite a
5: few.
3: Quite a few. There are, there are other professional bike riders, former professional Go bike on. riders. Ben King. Oh. Amateur... Uh, bird photographer. I think he's even professional now because he's had some photos published. Nicky Sorensen, former DS of uh, EF yeah. huge ornithologist, and would also spend even as in his time as a pro take time off to go out and take photographs of rare birds in the in the wetlands close to where we're sitting now. You a bit of a twitcher yourself, Brian? Uh, no, I'm a cat person. As you saw last night. Yes. And um,
2: Brian, I want to ask you about Mangus Court. Um, your compatriot, as I said. Where does he sit? Where does he stand? Where does he ride in
3: the Danish Hall of Fame? I don't think I'm offending him, and I know I'm not. Uh, he's a bit of an odd character. He's from the the island of Bornholm, which is in the Baltic Sea, and he came as a mountain biker. He won a ton of races as an amateur. Big fight for his signature. You know, he ended up signing with the team that I worked for at the time. We signed Magnus the same year as Caleb Ewan, and Caleb Ewan was it was obvious that he was a sprinter he was like a super fast man very dynamic but we couldn't really categorize Magnus Court because he's won quite different races and I remember the first one of the first camps he was on because it took quite a while for him to take his first professional win there was a um, they did a climbing not a test but like they wrote it as a race down in Valencia and he was second to Esteban Chavez at the, yeah. at the top of the climb so he's, he's extremely versatile he's technically mm. really good he obviously has a very fast finish, and you can also say that for EF Education, he's he's really, he delivers. Uh, he wins big races every year.
2: Yeah, he's a curious rider though, in that his results, his success in Grand Tours outstrips his success in other races. He's been conspicuously, well, I wouldn't say unsuccessful, but he, he hasn't won monuments. Um, he, he's rarely, I would say he's rarely been in contention for the
3: biggest one-day races, which is curious. Yeah, very, very, because when you look at his profile and his ability, it, it it's almost tailor-made to him but he's won a whooping six stages in the world you know he won a fantastic stage in the tour and he's just someone i think that will you know now with the emergence of mass peterson and who's almost like he's like building a, a bit of an era uh, around him megan scott is someone who's going to pick important wins mm. every every season for the rest of his active career i think because he's just bound to win something important during the year and it's it's odd to me that he's. For instance, never been in. A, I mean, it was pretty. He, he tried his luck in Bergen mm-hmm. in the in the World Championships in Norway, but he, he's also right. I would have down as a as a potential world champion because of his you know his ability to to win in a small group or, or shine in after a very hard uh, race. W- w- while we're on the subject of the Danish Hall of Fame, the Danish
2: Pantheon, are we are we, are we putting Ries in first? But beyond Eriksen, I mean with caveats asterisks yeah. um, some people won't agree with this obviously but in terms of achievements which uh, well he hasn't been stripped of his Tour de France crown um, Bjorn Ries and Wingergaard are at the top and then are we talking Rolf Sorensen and then are we looking at guys like Pedersen and Magnus Kort is that, is that the sort of
3: bracket that he's in yeah I mean the the thing that needs to be mentioned also you, you, you said you said in a parenthesis that it's when Rolf and, and Bjarne raced it was a completely different and we say that all it was a different time and yada yada but it really was when you see now the Denmark is a country of 6 million people and, and when you see how immense the level is in the top echelon of the world tour level it's it's quite remarkable having won you know we also have Caspar Asgrain who's won Tour of Flanders you know we have Strong riders who don't win often, but but have a potential yeah. to win big. A guy like Soren Krag anderson who's also you know one two, Fuglsang. yeah, two two stages. Fuglsang, who's probably in the in the in the later parts of his career, but you know he's won one Liege, he's won Lombardy, he's won Dauphiné twice, and he probably made the mistake of trying to be a Grand Tour rider early in his career, but he's he's certainly balanced out that with wins in other big races. Brian. At
2: this juncture, I think we should go back in time. Not to the mid-90s, not to Bjarne Reese's here We'll leave area, that to the DJ here while yeah, we're sitting. Yeah, <laughs> but to around about lunchtime today, or actually it was, it was more like three o'clock, so about three hours, four hours after the cappuccino curfew and my conversation today with our good mate, Lionel Bernie.
4: It's past 11. Time for my cappuccino break.
0: La pausa cappuccino con Lionel Bernie dopo le undici. Pronto!
2: Ciao How's Daniel, going,
4: ciao Daniel, you're, you're um, still ciao. at the Giro, you're still at the Giro. Yeah,
2: still at the Giro, still at the Giro. You had a rest of sorts yesterday as well, didn't you? Although we were both on duty to interview Theo Gegenhart, Um for our Kilometre Zero that came out this morning. Indeed. But I um, hope you're feeling somewhat recharged, Lionel. I'm not sure I am, but...
4: Well... I mean, yes. I've been a great. I I went for a bit of a run this morning, walk in the sunshine. Suddenly regretted not having sunshine. You know, yeah, oh, it's been glorious here today in the UK. Wow, what's that? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Is there any sign of the weather improving there in Italy? Because it's absolutely filthy no, again.
2: Yeah, um, I heard that there's no real sign of any significant improvement, certainly before Friday. And yeah, there are definite echoes of that 2019 Giro we keep mentioning, when it was really awful until the stage to Stradella won by Alberto Bettiol, who, um, it being about three hours after the Cappuccino Curfew, we just seen have, have have a terrible crash on the way into Viareggio, about 50k from the finish. But yeah, the weather is it's just it's just depressing, Lionel, and I think it's getting everyone down. I mean, I was thinking just before we started recording, we were sort of thinking aloud about this race being well stages being shortened and weather affecting it badly and then of course there might be some people will slap an asterisk on it because of Remco being out and other riders falling victims Covid tests and the 2013 race was a bit like this as well with well positive doping tests Danilo Di Lucas Sant'Ambrogio I remember and then also a couple of stages shortened in the final week Vincenzo Nibali was the winner so maybe years ending in three are always some dud vintages and they should be avoided I don't know I don't know how you can avoid old in Italia, but I mean, there you it, go
4: it, it does feel like uh, I don't know what the unlucky symbols are in Italy but has Maro Venu spent a fortnight walking underneath ladders as he spotted black cats in the well, road I mean it does all seem to be going against him obviously losing Remco Evnipol you know the race leader uh, well, before the rest day, even the 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 climb being taken out on the Trans Montana stage uh, as it stands, because uh, well, it's going to be impassable, isn't it? And I think so far, as we talk, sort of mid-afternoon, I think 11 riders have either not started or have uh, pulled out today. The attrition mm. rate is very very high. But as Teo Gegenhart said in our kilometre zero. You know Grand tours have always been a test of the legs, the head um, you know the the staying healthy, avoiding crashes and I heard Ben Swift a couple of episodes ago talking about the toll that the bad weather takes, especially when it 's bad weather day after day after day you know yeah. e- even even in the race itself, dropping back to the car more frequently um, the staying you know getting cold and staying cold, although the clothing is a lot better than it was, sort of even ten, fifteen years ago. It's still a miserable day out, and that is going to have a, an attritional effect on the peloton. And yeah, the the illness that is obviously spreading round is ruling riders out left, right, and centre. But that is a grand tour. You know, it isn't. Uh, you know, it isn't a picnic, is it? It's not a. It's not a kind of. Uh, you know, club ride it's a serious no. endeavour
2: yes that's right um, Lionel and I suppose there is going to be a large degree of luck even more than usual I suppose um, in terms of not getting ill or avoiding crashes because we, well we expect the crashes to multiply in these conditions it's funny I was talking yesterday to my our Italian friends at Geronimo on their podcast and Ooh. the 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 <laughs> I was playing away yesterday and the luck factor and just talking about how I may have mentioned this in last night's press conference just how Geraint Thomas and and Primus Rogic have been bedevilled by bad luck throughout their careers throughout their grand tour careers to a certain extent and it would be ironic and somehow fitting if they were to benefit from some good fortune this time either of those two
4: I do think that the conditions, you know, when it's bad weather like this repeatedly, I mean, there really hasn't been much let up, has there, for uh, a week. It just puts everybody on the limit, everybody on edge. The, the racing takes on a, another dimension I mean we saw the, the crash on that kind of fast downhill section a little bit earlier this afternoon where the poor Arkea Samsic mechanic stepped back into the road and Alberto mm. Bettiol hit him I mean it, it you know it's very was easy Was it a
2: Jayco? Was it not a Jayco? Was it, I thought it was a Jaco mechanic Was it Jayco? Yeah like a Jaco right. grey
4: training top Okay well it was a mechanic and uh, yeah. I mean you know easy to say don't step into the road because the riders are still going to be coming past but i can just imagine the stress and the tension everybody absolutely on the limit on a day like this and uh, that's when you know mistakes start totting up and yeah like i say the the uh, the element of luck is going to be you know quite significant until the weather improves and maybe it will improve just in time for the really hard week at the end of the race but yeah not much fun for
2: the peloton at the moment no, Lionel, um, and I suppose on that note, I'd better get back into the press room and see what's going on because it's quite difficult. It's a quite a difficult stage to call this at the moment because we've seen sprinters who have had issues. Um, Mark Cavendish has been dropped. Fernando Gaviria, I think he had a crash and has been dropped. And um, meanwhile, we've got a break still down the road. It's a difficult one to call. I'm not sure whether they're going to get caught or not.
4: Ooh, touch and go at the moment. That's veering into the realms of speculation but uh, I shall let you get back to it, Daniel, and I'll speak to you tomorrow.
2: Indeed. Thanks, Lionel. Right, Brian. A lot of chat about weather there. Um, And weather was definitely one of the themes of the day, wasn't it? Um, Today started with, amid fears that the stage was going to be shortened, we had the new CPA president... Adam Hansen tweeting about talks that were underway to shorten the stage due to, he said, thir- uh, three degrees and rain at the top of the climb, uh, 80 kilometre an hour, gusty winds predicted at the top, landslides I hear too, all stakeholders are there. And it sounded at that point from his tweet like it was a done deal that the stage was going to be shortened. However, of course we had the experience a few years ago, In the, it was a stage in Piedmont, wasn't it, to Alba, where the riders sort of, they unilaterally decided that they were going to shorten the stage and it went down very badly. Yep, at indeed. least now there's
3: a protocol. And I yeah. think those I mean, those talks are important because the decision making needs to be, you know, the riders need to be part of it, the teams, the organization, everyone needs to have their say because if not we'll get a lot more polemica than, than I think is really good for anyone. But I think with the, the potential of cancelling, for instance, the Radici today, when you look at what's coming later on in the Giro, I mean, they also, earlier today, they sent out a press release that they changed the, the parkour for the stage to Montana because they can't go across the, you know, the biggest, uh, the, the highest point of the Giro. So they have to go through the tunnel. So I think it would set a, I mean, the rider's safety is number one, without a doubt. We're going to talk about that later or so again, I guess, but it, was, it would set a precedence for the, for the weather, the adverse weather protocol for what's coming up. Because if they would cancel what's going to happen today, there would be a lot of other cancellations in the next 10 days of the Giro.
2: There was another tweet that caught our eye this morning. wasn't it, Brian from a good friend of mine, good friend of the podcast, M. Alain Rumpf, who used to work for the UCI. And he lives in Switzerland. He lives in the valley. Evid rider. Uh, it is the valley, isn't it? Uh, in Egl. And well, he was talking about the conditions on the Swiss Alpine Passes. And uh, sort of <laughs> suggesting that, to think, you can go to 2,400 metres. Grand San Bernardo is just over 2,400 metres. You thought it was a bit naive. Yeah, probably, possibly a bit naive, and... Conditions. Well, the Giro. I think people often forget that the Giro has moved forward quite significantly in the calendar compared to the 90s. The Giro was a used to was a race that used to take place. Well, half of it used to be in June. Um, it's all now in May. The
3: welter was in April.
2: Yeah, and that that makes a difference. And with the sort of vagaries of climate change, we seem to be seeing this pattern of May being a complicated month. And we've had a lot of problems in recent years with um, cancellations and postponements. had
3: to imagine that we won't see more of those this year. Yes.
2: But Brian, I propose that to hear a little bit more about what happened this morning and what happened then in the race itself, on the stage itself, we check in with our, well, another good friend, Lucky Larry Warbass, the Motown Maestro. Here's today's installment of La, Renzan, La Ranzando, I think we call it, not La Ranzando, La
5: Ranzando
0: la a postcard from italy with larry warbass
5: so yeah i don't know it was a pretty crazy day i would say it was probably one of the top 10 worst days um of my career <laughs> uh in terms of weather <clears throat> and cold um <clears throat> so and i think it was probably pretty similar for everyone you know i mean in the end when we started you know i kind of got to when we got to the sign in there was like a meeting with the riders and the cpa well there wasn't really anyone from the cpa but it was more just the riders and i guess they had pretty much all come to the decision that like you know maybe we actually would just do the last 70k because um it uh yeah it was supposed to be you know like 80k an hour winds and like two degrees in rain at the top of the climb so Everyone was kind of worried and, you know, not sure if it was going to be safe or not. But then the RCS people showed up and they started freaking out. And uh, they said it's very difficult to shorten a stage. And I said, well, it's very difficult to ride 200k under the pouring rain with 80k an hour winds. But, uh, uh, yeah, in the end, it actually stopped. kind of raining right at the start and so I think that kind of made everyone think like okay well you know maybe we'll see for me I was fine either way you know like if it's really dangerous you know I don't think we should race but I I did want to race today because like I thought it was a good shot for the breakaway which it clearly was unfortunately I was not in it but yeah that's how it goes Um, but yeah then at the top of the climb it was absolutely freezing and the problem is you know you kind of have to make a call and I wanted to go to the car to get um, a new jacket, like, you know, change sort of my clothes and my gloves before the descent. But uh, the problem was everyone else wanted to do the same, and so a lot of people had stopped, and the caravan was, like, actually quite a ways behind the peloton, so I went. I even dropped off the back of the peloton for a bit to try to get back to the cars, Um, but they were so far back I knew that if I stopped and tried to change my, uh, my kit... There's no way I would have made it um, in <laughs> over in the group. So I said, okay, well I guess we'll take a risk. I'll just go full, <clears throat> try to get make it over in the group. Maybe I'll warm up enough um, at the top, and we'll be okay by the bottom of the descent. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I actually I was over the top in quite good position. Started the descent in really good position, but I was so absolutely freezing that I couldn't even control my bike. I was just like shivering uncontrollably and, uh, <clears throat> all my muscles were like tense like <laughs> rocks. Um, so I, I, literally, I couldn't even go downhill. Um, so actually I think, uh, yeah, I, I, probably lost about a hundred spots on the descent and maybe caused, uh, a split or two. <laughs> but I wasn't the only one. There was a lot of guys uh, who were just shaking so crazy. They, also couldn't really control the bike so yeah that sucked Um, that was I went through a very miserable uh, point there but yeah I wasn't the only one I mean it was like one of the first times I've ever heard uh, pro cyclists just grunting in the race (laughs) because they were just so fucking cold Um, so yeah I mean there was a lot of people in some dark places today Um, but what's pretty crazy about that is like you know you go through this sort of like dark cloud of suffering and misery and being absolutely frozen and you actually are like you don't know how you're gonna make it out and then all of a sudden like 45 minutes later you're actually totally fine and like uh not even cold anymore so um it's kind of crazy how that goes and i would say by the end of the day i wouldn't say that the race was dangerous um the way we ran it I would say the only dangerous thing was just, like, it is a pretty... was a pretty crazy descent, and, uh, in the freezing cold rain with, like, you know, freezing guys, um, you know, if we would all stopped at the top of the climb and been able to put on warm clothes, it would have been totally fine, um, but, yeah, you know, uh, that's bike racing, and there's, like, a lot of variables that go into it, um, so, yeah, um, that was kind of how the day went, so, uh, yeah, um... It was not the best day of the Giro yet, but I guess uh, we ride rain or shine, so that's, that's the summary of the day.
2: Well, Brian, I could feel Larry's teeth chattering um, there. I mean, I, I took pity. I saw Larry coming into the bus parking and I wasn't going to stop him there. I, I took pity on, um, on him and his plight at that particular time. So he sent in uh, a very graphic voice, ma- voice message there, and um, to keep him warm. Yeah, and and it sort of underlines as well. You know, there are aspects of this, there are dimensions of this that we don't consider. Some of them are purely practical. The the, the, the question of how you change clothes and what a difference that can make. To that effect, I heard another. Eyewitness account in the bus parking this afternoon and it was from dsm's direct sport team, matt winston and here he is i alluded to it earlier here he is talking about the the state that alberto dainese was reduced to on the top of the paso de radici today
6: yeah i think for the riders that's going to rank up there as uh, one of the the worst days it rained pretty much all day um yeah we we some of our guys really suffered actually with the with the cold alberto was really struggling and in the end, it came to a point in the descent where we had to uh, stop and uh, totally redress him. I think I was standing, giving him a hug for about two minutes just to try and get some warmth back in his body and uh, the circulation going. Uh, but yeah, it was a it was a pretty grim
2: day out. And this morning, there was some there was some sort of confusion and uncertainty about what stage was going to be ridden and who wanted to ride what. I mean, what was uh, what was
6: your position? Yeah, there was a discussion I believe before the start, but we had. We had no part of it. Um, we we heard the same rumours, um, but for me, kind of, I, in that moment when you come one hour before the race, you're like you, you cannot be wasting energy deciding whether or not you got to race. You've just got to focus on what we wanted to do, um, and so we didn't give it really much chat in the bus. We just I, I knew that nothing would happen. To be honest, I knew the stage would continue, so we just prepared like we normally
2: would. A brutal day, Brian. An absolutely brutal day. And you know, I found myself. Thinking earlier, if before the start of the Giro, you laid out the whole 21 stages of the Giro and asked any of the riders to point to a day when they might face this kind of condition, this is one of the last places they true. would have thought that they would have had problems because, you know, Viareggio, this coastline, Versilia, it's sort of synonymous with Mediterranean climate. It's Mediterranean. The Mediterranean, isn't it? Yeah,
3: <laughs> and um, it's actually, more specifically, it's the Ligurian Sea which is you know the beach clubs here open in uh, the Easter weekend Easter holiday weekend so they've been open for quite a bit you know you, if you when you rent a cabin here for the for the season you start paying in the middle of April so uh, you'd kind of want your money back uh, for major parts of May because it it hasn't been good for a long time and we were lucky to catch a sunny day yesterday in my hometown, but it's, it, it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. There's a lot of rain coming up, including tomorrow.
2: Yeah, and, and every day, new challenges are being thrown at the riders, and it is becoming, we often say that a Grand Tour is a test of survival as much as it's a test of ability and fitness. Illness is part of that. Today, we saw a bit of a return of some of the COVID protocols. We're now having to wear masks um, to interview the riders, which we're very accustomed to. Um, so that was the, the protocol in the bus park. This afternoon, a lot of teams are licking their wounds. A lot of teams are, you know, lost riders to crashes. Uh, I mentioned Jko Lula and Demarki earlier. They had that crash with Purstelberger. Um, he was going to be taken to hospital, I believe, after the stage um, just for concussion check. Or oh, he was certainly going to be examined, um, put through their concussion. He, 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 he was on the ground for a bit there, wasn't he? It yeah, like he, he definitely took a hit. Put through their concussion protocol. And we have riders, well, we have riders who have left the race due to COVID. We know about Remco Evenepoel, we're going to talk about him again in a minute. But there are other illnesses as well. For example, Alexander Vlasov, who's a rider, let's be honest, at the start of the season, he was someone we considered among the favourites for Giro d'Italia, and he was doing fine. He was
3: he was in the top ten. Especially with the with the parkour, this was perfect for him. Yes,
2: but we hadn't we hadn't seen him very much, mm. and we won't be seeing him anymore because he's out of the race through illness. And I spoke after the finish to his direct sportif Jens Zemke about exactly why he's left the Giro d'Italia.
7: On the beginning of the stage, we had directly.
2: Yeah, full gas, full
7: gas race, and these conditions are clear, nobody goes easy uh, with these temperatures. And on the first climb, after 10-13 kilometers, he came to the car. So first we were thinking he bring back some, well, he wants to have some clothing or uh, anything, but he mentioned immediately that he feels completely empty, that he is could not breathe, that he is sore throat, and yeah so it was very sad day for us to losing our our big captain
2: yeah and you don't know yet obviously whether it's COVID or no we we tested him uh
7: this morning and yesterday evening because he was not feeling so well and yeah like our normal procedure yeah, yeah. like we we are awake um that that it's yeah in the in the bunch the virus so we test a lot and yeah, he didn't show these typical symptoms or I think it's not COVID. I think it's a respiratory thing.
2: And just last thing, um, i just spoke to Matt Winston, DSM. He said his riders, some of his riders were so cold, that he was hugging them. They were crying. One of them was crying. I mean, how cold were you guys?
7: Yeah, we, we were crying in the car when we, <laughs> when we heard that uh, Alex has no chance to finish. Um, yeah, the conditions were absolute on the maximum. I mean, this tough climbing, 2,800-metre elevation in the first half of the race and with ice-cold rain and then a 30-kilometre descent, then you could see the riders absolute on the limit, shaking. Uh, Somebody also then lost concentration and crashed. We had also one rider
2: Yeah, but that's a Giro, yeah. Well, Brian, just as we pause there, I was catching up on some reading, we've got today's La Gazzetta del Sport open, uh, the, the middle page editorial from an, a comment piece written by Pierre Bergonzi, someone that you and I know well, also a wine lover like yourself, he's a he's a sommelier, he has it's been... Most senior
3: cycling rider on, in La like said, I mean he's been, yeah. he's now in an editorial role, but a, a very big voice in, of Italian yes, cycling.
2: Yes, and he had quite an interesting piece about Remco Evenapur, the, the headline is, uh, Evenapur COVID and the respect that one should pay to the Giro. I'm just going to read one particularly z- particularly zinging sentence here, or a couple of z- pretty zinging sentences from Piet Bergonzi's editorial. Remco Evenepoel chose to leave the Giro because he realised that he wasn't in the psychological and, and above all physical condition to win the Giro d'Italia. And the Flemish rider, is he? Re- he's from Brussels, isn't he? I'm um, not strictly speaking, a Flem, a Flemish rider.
3: Flem- um, <laughs> but I think Pierre was probably so angry that he left out like double-checking the yes. details. Yes,
2: um, he has a personality that's as big as his talent. Let's say that he would have struggled to accept a defeat and he preferred to leave the race in the pink jersey with two... Stage wins in the time trials up until now, and um, pretty scathing, pretty speculative as well. I know another man who read this piece, and <laughs> <laughs> I know this because I've been really looking this forward to particular this. individual. Well, he paid a visit to the press room this afternoon, just a social visit, um, to see <laughs> see who was around, whether there was maybe someone from Legazette del Sport. That man was the Sudal Quick Step team manager. Was he wearing his uh, Was
3: he wearing his white Panama hat?
2: <laughs> that was the Sudal Quick Step team manager. Patrick Lefebvre and while he was sort of searching in the bowels of the building where the press room was for anyone representing La Gazette de la Sport well um, the,
3: the problem that, that in that <laughs> case is also there's actually a sign on the on the yes, place of the press room that's a sign yes. to them they were easy to heretics find heretics here um uh, <laughs> I, s- I intercepted
2: Patrick Lefebvre. F- Maybe uh, you calmed him down with it before he yes. went on and the rampage. After, actually. I intercepted him after he'd made his feelings pretty clear to uh, our good friend Luca Giallanella, who was not the offender in this case. Uh, Luca is the head of the cycling but I have
3: to But as a preface to this, not just because of the editorial piece that Begonzi did, the, the, the spread of today's Giro coverage in La Gazzetta, ha- it had the headline Così non fan tutti, which is a, a wordplay with... With a very famous opera by Mozart that says, Everyone does this. And their point was that, sorry for interrupting you here, not everyone does this, referring to Remco's exit. And they were there, they're sort of there. Their claim to this point was uh, Bustrom of One Sea and said, Well, he was positive too, but he stayed here as that Norwegian Viking that he is. But that, that point only lasted uh, basically the night of, uh, before today because Bustrom didn't take start this morning. So that point kind of washed away with the rain. Eek. Brian. Without too much further ado,
2: post-undiplomatic visit to our colleagues from La Gazzetta dello Let's hear what Patrick Lefebvre had to say in today's
3: chiacchierata del giorno,
0: the chinwag of the day.
2: Patrick, I believe you're here in the press room on an undiplomatic mission, you wanted to see some of my colleagues from La Gazette dello Sport because you were pretty upset with what Pierre Bergonzi read this morning.
8: I'm not upset. I'm more uh, uh, deception, how you call it. I'm disappointed. Disappointed because I thought he was a man with a lot of class. But this morning he proved uh, he's totally wrong. He almost never comes to the race. Don't speak to the teams and the riders. And then he read write this. This is really... Uh, yeah, hitting under the
2: yeah below the belt yeah Yeah. because he he said that it was an excuse basically he said that it was an excuse that Remco felt that he was going to lose the Giro I mean uh, do you think it's libelous maybe you going to look uh, can you
8: go home if you have the Malia Rosa with 55 seconds on the second so this is the most crazy thing I ever heard in my life.
2: Are you thinking of taking legal action?
8: We should do it. I don't say we will do it, but we should do it. We did one error, that's true. I was at home, but uh, one of my DS had to call Veni uh, to, to, to tell them. But he didn't run away because he took the car next morning at 9.30. So it's not that he ran away in the middle of the night like a thief.
2: And how's Remco today? Have you spoken to him?
8: Via WhatsApp, yes, I uh, said I still feel uh, tired, he's still positive, so just not not uh, hurry anymore, no.
2: And what about, how's his morale, because obviously this is a huge, huge disappointment.
8: I don't see his morale in the WhatsApp, <laughs> <laughs> but of course uh, he's disappointed and that's also one of the reasons that I'm leaving him alone, because what can I say, uh, I, I spoke to him immediately after the finish, He has uh, the team around him. Before he went home, he spoke with the guys
2: to set head up and fight. So, uh, okay. And just last thing, Patrick, I know everyone wants to know what his program is, but um, can you give us any hint about whether you're even considering the option of sending him to the Tour de France?
8: Look, only one second.
2: No hint whatsoever, no clue? Well, Brian, what did you make of that polemica? Polemica. We knew the big polemica this year,
3: didn't we? We knew the, the it, a Ajira press room is different from other press rooms. I would, um, I w- my intuition before the race was that any polemica coming would come directly from the mouth of Evanepol, and he surprised me. Like we talked about that a few times. He's been very diplomatic. He's been very clear, very precise, quite charming, actually. In the in the in the Sala Stampa after his taking the you know taking the jersey and the stage wins. And and you can't have a Giro without having polemica. You know, there's a little bit less of it now because there are fewer journalists in the in the Sala Stampa. But this is just gold, isn't it? This is it's it's vintage Lefèvre. It's vintage La Gassetta. They, you know, the race is the real jewel in the crown. Yeah, I know. and and now when you know when they disrespect the the jewel. Or they will let the the hounds of the pink paper you know, out and they will have to bite someone to blame. Unfortunately, as we were saying earlier, Brian, and this is something
2: that you really notice about, like, uh, in Giro d'Italia these Your days, voice
3: is low now. Are trying to say something controversial? No, it's,
2: it's very insecure about its, yeah, its yeah. status, its position, its prestige. Something in... they don't
3: share with the Tour de France.
2: No, and something they don't share with the the Vuelta a España good either. Point, good point. The Vuelta a España has always seen itself as, I suppose, the kind of runt of the litter. It knows that it's... It's birthright. And it's comfortable in its own skin. Exactly, its birthright is to be third place in that pecking order. Actually, now over the past few years, by virtue of some sensible choices, I think they are—they're a threat to the Giro. Good point. Um, Very good point. Although they don't. But I think
3: there's also a, a cultural point to this. You—you you said something. I've, I've thought about years after about the difference between France and Italy is that in in France they take their status. For granted. Mm. So if you give them a, a compliment, it's, they they would look at you and like, yeah, of course, you know. But if you give an Italian a compliment, they they will they will smother themselves in mm. it. They will they they, they'll remember they will remember it forever. They will lather themselves in it and moisturize
2: with it. it exactly, and...
3: exactly. They would use it as the broth in their risotto. They, it's just <laughs> it's just such a thing. It's easy to pay a compliment to an Italian because they, they it's you think they almost need it. And I think that's one of the reasons why this. If we do a, a sort of the the, the the layman's psychoanalysis of the Giro. This is this is why you're gonna you saw this piece today. Like I said, so it's their own insecurity that they somehow have to point fingers at, at people leaving the race with which what I, with what I believe perfectly reasonable arguments for the for the health of their rider. Well, I mean, why the hell would just to, just spec, just bear with me here? Just speculate that Remco was like, ah, I have the leader's jersey. I'm leading the race with like a little bit less than a minute, but I have certain doubts. So home I go, knowing, I mean, Pierre Bergonti like I said, the they, they follow cycling on a daily basis throughout the year. Is there anything ever in Remco's ego or personality that would give cause for this kind of analysis of his decision-making? I don't think so. No, I, I would have to agree with you. Um, Brian, let's
2: talk now about something completely different.
0: La tappa di domani e la cena di ieri. Tomorrow's stage yesterday's dinner.
2: Brian talking of compliments, how people take compliments, flattery, I'm going to flatter you and your lovely wife Karen now by saying that I had a, a joyous, it was a, a glorious evening on your terrace last night, um, a rare treat, home cooked meal during a grand tour. And we had never some, happens, doesn't it? No. Lovely... Um, I think we had grilled asparagus. Lovely vegetarian meals and yeah. gr- grilled asparagus. Do you want to give us a rundown on the menu? We f- had your a father-in-law also
3: contributed in a significant way as well. Yeah, so we'd, uh, f- we had grilled asparagus. We had a f- huge salad of salt. Salt. And we had um, um, parmigiana, which is... Um, uh, eggplant with parmesan and, and tomato sauce and uh, I don't know if, if I actually had some of it but my father-in-law had made a, a delightful cake I was uh, the summer year of the evening that was my main focus and we had a I think some, some, some nice bottles yeah it was fantastic but it's also and you I'm sure you had the feeling as well even if this you know you, you didn't come home in the way that I did but I also put my guard down a little bit and then the the fat, fatigue its pathetic to talk about fatigue but i'm an old man now but the, actually i felt quite tired this morning and it's because when you actually come home you put your guard down and you you allow yeah. yourself to be quite tired and i i sort of i felt like this morning i had to sort of pull myself up again and my day went absolute pear-shaped i got on the wrong train i got off in the wrong place i looked i, I messed up with my maps and i was i was the in Vierge where we're sitting now an hour later than i should be it was like shambles daniel so uh, I'm happy now at least I know the way back and we're driving in our cycling podcast car. And We've got one more night in Pietra Santa and then tomorrow Brian, well
2: tomorrow's stage heads away from the Mediterranean and into Piedmont, another fantastic wine region and we're heading to a city, a town that is one of the few one of a few towns that's sort of synonymous with Fausto Coppi partly because he died there.
3: Um, tell us more about tomorrow's stage. It's a long one Daniel. And it uh, another, one, another long one. Another long one. It's um, yeah, it's a whopping two hundred nineteen kilometers. It starts in Camaiora, which is the neighbouring town here. Camaiora, which also has a lido further down the road, a stretch of the the beach, beaches here. And then it uh, we go across uh, to the uh, to the Ligurian region on the Passo del Braco. Not going to go into further uh, history about that. And then it sort of goes up on the plains towards Tortona, where. There are some smaller climbs, but it's mainly downhill in the last third of the race, and it's it's quite interesting because with the dynamics now, today breakaway was successful. Uh, it's after today, which was a lot harder than people expected. I think a breakaway will go again. Really? Yeah, as I think the um, the teams that potentially could, you know, trek for today worked really hard today. Yeah, Astana worked really hard today when yeah. they saw Cavendish got back. And one of the sort of light motifs of today and after today, especially, is also licking wounds. And they think there'll be quite a bit of that tomorrow. Yeah. And a lot of teams know that, so they'll they'll send riders up the mm. road.
2: Cavendish rode well. He rode a good race today. He was there or thereabouts. Um, Home
3: roads almost for him too. Yes, that's true. Sprinting,
2: obviously, for uh, a fourth place is very different from sprinting for a win. But he was in the shake-up. He was well-positioned. So um, I'll be interested to see. Tomorrow could potentially be some of these guys' last day on the Giro d'Italia. Well, that might make a difference as well. Maybe... Uh, That's Cavendish a very good point, actually. That's feel point. As though They need to take this last opportunity tomorrow before he maybe heads for an airport somewhere. Mm, Turin is. T- Tortona is quite a handily place for Turin. Anyway, Brian, we'll be back tomorrow from Tortona. In the meantime, we're going to head back to Pietrasanta and we're going to bid everyone Buonasera. Buonasera a tutti.
8: The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Fried and Lionel Byrne.